This week on the show, we cover Research Unix version 6 in the OpenSimHPPT 11 emulator. The hot top time machine is your ZFS turnback time method. NFS on NetBSD, the server and client side. We cover also the HardBSD October 2022 status report, new shell, which is an interesting station, new shell things, and more. This week still. BSD Now, episode 483, and it's called ZFS Time Machine, recorded on the 16th of November, 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backups for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show with a little bit of a donation or other kinds of things that you want to show your appreciation for this thing, uh, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow, and thank you in advance if you do. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Horschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Yeah, we are here with a new episode for you. We are approaching the 486th episode, which will be a special one. So just to get you excited for that, but we have to wait a little bit longer to get it. Uh, first, we jump into headlines of this week. That is about installing and using Research Unix version 6 in the Open SimH PDP 11 emulator. Yeah, so if you want to go all the way back in time uh, to using version 6 of Unix uh, before it even became BSD, uh, this provides the instructions on how to do that. They say the primary motivator for this revision of these instructions is the formation of the Open SimH steering committee, and they're taking on the maintenance and care of the SimH emulator. Secondarily, it's been seven years since I wrote the original uh, notes on this, and I wanted to bring them back up to date. Uh, the note is intended to document the process of running Unix v6 on a PDP 11 slash 40 emulator. Uh, that is what Sim, oh, OpenSimH provides. Uh, this note details the process of building a working v6 instance from a copy of the original tape distribution. It is worth noting that calling them original bits uh, as would be obtained from the original tape, uh, could be misleading. There are a number of different uh, versions that exist, but the Unix Heritage Society, hereafter referred to as twos, uh, has provided the public access to all of the versions they believe to be most closely matching the original tape. Cue all the episodes we did uh, about Warner Losh's work to try to reconstruct the original tape uh, by starting with a newer tape and a list of the patches and trying to undo them all. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so the system requirements is you need a working host. Uh, the, the author is using macOS between version 10.9 and 12.6, uh, but it also works on FreeBSD, um, somewhere between 10.2 and 13.1, or Linux Mint, 19, 20, or 21, etc. And they feel confident it'll work on pretty much any host that can run OpenSimH. You need a license. Uh, they're using the Caldera Unix Enthusiast license, and they have a link on how to get that. Uh, and you will need the OpenSimH emulator itself. Um, they've used versions 3 plus, and this is noted based on the latest version, uh, a snapshot from October 19th of 2022. Then you'll need the distribution tape image, and they have a link to the specific tape that they grabbed from twos. Uh, and there's a couple of different versions there you can pick from. And lastly, the man command and a bunch of work from other people. I will be using nblock and dblock uh, from Wolfgang's work uh, to do a bunch of the stuff here. 
Uh, so first I'm going to describe creating a workspace, downloading the image, building uh, it up with mblock and dblock, etc. So they create a directory, uh, they call retro work area slash v6 and go into that, download the tape archive and the mblock and dblock programs, uh, ungzip and extract the tarball. Then they use the uh, build the mblock and dblock utilities, uh, compiling those, setting those up. And then they need to prepare a tape. So they mblock the v6.tape file and produce uh, a distribution file. And then they create a tape boot uh, description file. So this is a little like Windows style INI file uh, that OpenSimH takes and will use it to emulate the tape drive. So they set all the parameters for the tape. They explain the contents of this file in another section if you actually want to understand what's going on here. Uh, but then they start SimH. Uh, and tell it to use that tboot.ini to boot from the tape. And then it shows as it will spit out uh, its content and you can see what it's actually doing. And you can halt the CPU by pressing control E and it will uh, break and display the simulation stopped, etc. Uh, and then they talk about getting it to boot and they say the tape has virtually uh, moved and the CPU is looped. Halting and restarting the CPU will cause the tape to rewind. The next step will start the program now resident on CPU zero. At this point, I believe that we have loaded the, a minimal OS from the tape and the tape is composed of 512 byte blocks. You know, so blocks zero through 100 are the bootstrap of the tape. Uh, blocks 101 through 4100 are the RK05 root image. And then they have another 4,000 blocks that are the slash USR and then another 4,000 blocks that are slash doc. Uh, if you want to use different source devices than the default, uh, they talk about how to do that. And then they get through copying tape objects over to the disk uh, and getting all that kind of stuff working. And then they switch to booting from disk instead of tape now that they have an install and get that going. And then they're going to configure and install the new kernel. They say note, uh, even in 1975, a rebuild of the kernel took only 50 seconds because the kernel wasn't that big yet. Uh, so they run... Uh, mkconf uh, and set it up with a tape reader, a punch tape, a mag tape, a deck tape, serial terminal, and so on, loading all those drivers, uh, assembling that, compiling it, linking it, and getting a Unix binary. So their kernel is about 30 kilobytes. Then they can uh, make their bunch of uh, devices under slash dev, uh, and then look at actually compiling some other stuff doing the mknod and chmod on all the slash dev entries, copying some files around with dd, uh, and setting up their etc mount file. And then all the other instructions you need to get to an actual shell uh, in a Unix v6 system. Wow. And they even show about copying files around, deleting files, and all the fun stuff. Like it was yesterday. Um, not us. Yeah, and they have a little uh, ed cheat sheet at the bottom because that's going to be the editor that's going to be there. And if you haven't used it, it's very confusing at first. <laughs> and my students hate VI and I tell them, oh, there were worse editors before that. <laughs> but definitely nice for a historic walk down memory lane. Uh, in a little bit more modern age, we have HTTM. No, not HTTP, HTTM. What is that, you ask? This is our next article from Clara Systems, the Hot Top Time Machine, uh, which is your ZFS turnback time method. And it's an article written by Robert Swinford. And 
the intro uh, is right up my alley here. If you're anything like me, when you accidentally delete something you shouldn't have, you feel a sudden stab of awfulness about it. Digging through backups to find the latest copy of something you lost can make you feel, however irrationally, like a bad person. Ah, yeah, feel you right there. But don't yeah, worry. When you, when you make the mistake and you realize it and you just feel like the back of your neck getting really hot ah. or your face going flush and you're like, whoops. <laughs> Shouldn't have done that, yeah. But uh, all is not lost. Don't worry, you don't need therapy. <laughs> Whenever this happens to him, and it, it does happen to any kind of uh, people doing any kind of sysadmin work or day-to-day -day work even, uh, he remembers that he wrote a little tool called HGDM. Using HTDM helps him find uh, his lost files much more quickly, which makes the associated I'm a moron feeling pass more quickly as well. So HTDM does lots of other cool things too, a few of which uh, is hoped it will have time to touch upon. But let's consider the case of the infamous fat-fingered sysadmin first. So that um, you may occasionally try new software packages, which leaves some traces of itself behind when you remove it. That craft might be essentially harmless, but if you're like him, craft in your ETC or even your user share man folder will drive you nuts. If you're not known for your skinny fingers or light touch, you might also accidentally remove the occasional entire folder when you only meant to remove a file. So for example, see the user share man, when you obviously meant sudo rmrf uh, man slash dupon two dash advantage dot one dot gz, you do rmrf dot slash man one slash and then ss Space, and then you do Ubuntu advantage one. And that space causes you to remove the entire uh, section one of the man page, all of them. Oops. You've managed to delete your man one folder, the folder that contains documentation for the most fundamental tools in your system, LS, RM, even man itself. But before those misty tears form, you remember you set your alarm up with automated set of snapshots. So you're sure you've got a copy of the data lost. But now you've got to trawl through your snapshots, finding uh, the proper ones. Happily, this is exactly where HTDM can help. Like any good tool, HTDM lets you ask questions. So let's ask a few questions. First, do you have any copies of MAN1 readily available in snapshots of the ZFS dataset that should contain it? So you do HTDM, user share, MAN, uh, and then MAN1, of course, as the subdirectory. And then it goes back in time in its history, as much as history it has available, and finds, ah, there is a snapshot that has this from not too long ago, because there is um, a timestamp. Okay, do the second question then. Do you have any copies of MAN1 available on any locally available ZFS dataset? So you do HDDM-A for exactly that same directory. And then it finds, ah, look at that. There is something in a different boot environment that was found. Okay, third question. Obviously, this is great. You don't have to search through your .ZFS snapshot directory. You don't even have to remember upon which set of his data set user share man man one is located. Now on to the restore. This parent directory, man one's contained man one. We start there and follow the dialogues to select the snapshot from which to restore man one. HDM R user share man. That gives you a nice little menu, an interactive one showing all snapshots which contain the file you're looking for. This is the file you're looking for. You can arrow through the menu and hit enter to select the snapshot. After which HDDM asks if you're certain you want to overwrite the current file with a copy of it from the snapshot you chose, and the good times don't stop there. Consider our complete feelings about Apple's time machine. They have a little bit of a rant going on about Apple's time machine and the way they do these things. Uh, pretty well worth the read. 
because you can do it all with ZFS just as well. And uh, then they go a little bit more into a couple of examples about HTTM, what it can do. You can search certain deleted files recursively or uh, other cool things with FZF, FZF, for example. So fuzzy searching is also possible. And so HTTM uh, is the hot top time machine. And that is definitely hot and cool <laughs> both at the same time. Yeah. It provides a really nice interface for kind of browsing around your .zfs slash snapshots and uh, being like, all right, here's the file I lost. Uh, what versions of it do I have? And picking one to restore and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that saves you hours of searching and also you're back uh, quicker uh, with the file that you lost. Very nice. So next up, over at unitedbsd.com, uh, we have NFS on NetBSD server and client side. So I start off as pretty much any other Unix system, NetBSD provides solid in-kernel NFS support. Uh, since I only run Windows occasionally, mainly for Office and MATLAB, all of my machines either run NetBSD, Slackware, or Triplex, which is a type of Illumos. It makes sense uh, for me to opt for NFS as my distributed file system protocol to share my files between all of these machines. So my primary task, first of all, is to run a custom kernel and make sure that it has support built in for the NFS servers. They run config-x on their NetBSD kernel and check for NFS. And they see that they have NFS file system support and the NFS server module option. Uh, so next, they set how many IO threads NFS should use. In their example, they're setting it to six. And then they need to configure an NFS server. So in this case, they want to make the following ZFS datasets available on the local network. So they're actually using the ZFS in NetBSD. So they create their etc exports file and set that up, saying, you know, share slash ZFS slash data and slash ZFS slash music and ZFS slash PKG uh, to my 192.168.1.0 network. Uh, so this tells MountD to serve those datasets uh, via NFS. And so once they have RPC, B, uh, RPC bind and MountD uh, enabled and their NFS server set up, uh, then they will have NFS. And they also enable StatD and LockD here. So they get all of those up and running. Uh, then they look at setting up their firewall to allow all the right stuff through with NPF. And then finally, uh, once they've got uh, NPF reloaded and allowing those, they can run showmount-e on their home lab server and get a list of all the exported file systems. So now that they're sharing those on the server, they want to try to mount them on a client. So on the client, they also have to enable RPC bind, the NFS client, and LockD and StatD. Once those are up and running, they configure auto-mounting of NFS shares. So rather than being mounted all the time, they'll be auto-mounted as you try to access them. Uh, so in their FS tab, they add lines for home lab colon slash ZFS slash data slash music slash package like we talked about, and set those to no auto and setting a timeout. Uh, so with the timeout, I mean that if the, uh, how long the NFS client will wait before it retries the request. And they basically cut that in half uh, to make it more responsive. So then they mount it and go into slash net slash music or whatever and start playing with it. They also talk about configuring AMD, the auto mount daemon, and setting it up so that it'll auto mount as soon as you go into the directory and it'll unmount it when nobody's using it. So they get that all set up and mapped as well. So now when they try to access slash net, it makes auto mount automatically access those directories and get it done. They're also looking at updating this documentation to talk about auto FS as well, uh, but that's 
left for the future at some point. Mm -hmm. Cool. Nice way of getting into uh, file sharing on PSD. Uh, we're also sharing your uh, next HardenBSD October 2022 status report. And Sean Webb has been busy writing not only this report, but also doing the work in that report. Starting off with, it has been an exciting month for HardenBSD. First up, it's an important announcement. I'm officially looking for new job opportunities. Ah, this is important for the HardenBSD project since the development and build infrastructure is housed at my now former employer's office. Okay, I'm grateful for the two and a half years in which Blackhawk Nest has provided the project with free hosting. They've agreed to continue hosting the development and build infrastructure for free until the end of November. Blackhawk Nest has been incredibly supportive of the project in many ways, and I wish them well in their future endeavors. Oh yeah, that's certainly appreciated. Uh, HardenBSD's development and build infrastructure will need to find a new home. Looking at the long term, I would eventually like HardenBSD to stand independent of my employment. However, we currently lack the funding and will need to continue to rely on my employer until we gain enough sustained funding. It's my hope that HardenBSD's development and build infrastructure is transitioned into a timely or in a timely manner to its new home, wherever that may be, before the end of November 2022. So a couple of weeks, uh, or by the time this episode comes out. Um, if you would like to help out in the effort to make HardenBSD's infrastructure stand independent, please donate. We appreciate the community's contributions to the project, regardless of the form those contributions come in, uh, code, advocacy, funding, or other. Please note that OS binary updates, package repos, and installer images are hosted elsewhere and will not be interrupted. GitLab and the build system will be the only systems impacted. Okay, now let's go into progress in the project itself. In source, he lists that he added a new sysctl tunable, which is hardening the packs.kmod underscore load disable. That when set disables loading all kernel modules from that point forward. The KLD RC script has been updated such that users can specify hardened BSDs, uh, HBSD late KLD prohibit in RC conf, which will let the CCTL node after loading modules specified in KLD list. This work was sponsored by Blackhawk Nest. Second is that a significant progress has been made on cross DSO CFI support, an installable version of hardened BSD 14 current with cross DSO CFI. Enable can now build itself, meaning that make build will build kernel works in fully cross DSO CFI system. Uh, there's still more work to be done here on a normal install of HardenBSD 14. The following command fails when building the compiler toolchain. Uh, the build world without system compiler equals yes and without system linker equals yes. The CTF merge application sec faults when building the kernel. CTF merge is needed for dtrace support. Plan to disable CDF merge in the cross DSO CFI feature branch and circle back around to fixing whatever bugs lie in the CTF merge. He'd rather keep the momentum around the cross DSO CFI support going. And in the ports section, he listed that he forked previously's PUTVR project to support the needs of building packages in HardenBSD. By default, PUTVR creates a one gigabyte tempfs mount for data. HardenBSD has slightly outgrown that, so the size has increased to two gigabytes to account for future growth. Uh, Sean also disabled CFI for X11 servers, XORG server. Uh, Loic fixed X11 uh, VM enlightenment, Bobo filter, PEPS, KMOD, uh, NetDisco, MIPS, uh, GTKD, and PyWM, as well as removing lib32 in emulators, lib66 shim. 
Last but not least, Sean bumped the version of HardBSD lib-lat-util. Okay, so definitely uh, reach out or give a little bit of money if you want to get HardBSDs uh, built uh, going, independent of a certain vendor, as you mentioned, uh, or a certain employer, so that he's kind of independent that way. Um, ah, next up is New Shell by Celine. Oh, Celine, sorry. Yeah, so they say, let me introduce you to a nice project I found while lurking on the internet. It's called New Shell, and it's a non-POSIX shell. So most of your regular shell knowledge from Bash, KSH, Born, uh, ZSH, etc., won't be applied on it, and it'll feel like doing functional programming. It's a good tool for creating robust data manipulation pipelines. You can think of it as a mix of shell, uh, which would include aux power, behave like an SQL database, and which knows how to import and export XML, JSON, YAML, TOML, etc. You may uh, want to try new shell only as a tool and not as your main shell. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's like it's kind of a different scripting language you might use for something you didn't necessarily want to use it as your interactive shell. Uh, with a regular shell, iterating over a command output can be complex uh, when it involves spaces or new lines, for instance. That's why find and xargs have the print zero uh, flags to separate file names with a null byte instead of spaces because a file name with spaces in it will then be a bunch of separate files and can has all kinds of uh, unintended side effects in your script. But it doesn't compose well with all other tools. So new shell handles correctly the situation as it manipulates the data using indexed entries, giving you, uh, you know, correctly parsed input uh, from the beginning. So how to get it? It's a Rust program. Uh, so it should work on every platform where, you know, Rust and its cargo package manager are. They've already created a package for it on OpenBSD, so it's available on current, and uh, it'll be usable on 7.2 with no effort. Uh, with the NixOS, is packaged under the name NewShell and the binary name New. And for other platforms, uh, it's certainly probably already packaged. Otherwise, you can find the instructions on the website. To configure it, uh, at first run, you're prompted to use the default configuration file. I'd recommend accepting that. And then you can create your own file under .config slash NewShell. The only change I made for now was to make tab completion case sensitive. So typing uppercase D and pressing tab completes to downloads with a capital D instead of asking if you mean dev with a lowercase D or downloads with an uppercase D. So just setting case sensitive completions uh, to true means that it won't uh, be different. So it depends what you're used to. If you're used to it being case sensitive or not, and you can set the shell to be whichever way you like. Uh, you can also uh, use help, um, and it'll explain a bunch of the commands. It has interesting things like sort by. Uh, looks pretty interesting. Uh, so then they have a great example here of converting a data structure into another. So they open up uh, a YAML file and then pipe, and they literally just put two space JSON, uh, and it parses that YAML and spits it out as JSON. Uh, or in another case here, they ran sysctl-a, pipe parse, and they basically set a, a regex to say everything before the equal sign is the key and everything after that is the value. Uh, and it prints out a nice little table with ID numbers, the key, and the value of each. Uh, and then they can pipe that into shuffle and get the last 10 and sort those by key and a bunch of other interesting things like that. This is really interesting. It kind of reminds me of that um, unicage that shell it. scripting thing, uh, it was presented at a BSD can a long time ago. It was like how a Japanese cash register is all written in shell. 
oh yes where they do all kinds of uh shell and they're yeah, faster and they than... also showed like faster than hadoop and so on yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. uh they even have an example here of recursively converting flat files to opus so if you ever had to loop through a whole bunch of that they say let convert equal you know ls star star slash star dot flack and then uh par each file do you know ffmpeg dash i the file name and write out uh file name pipe stir replace flack with opus and then so it'll actually mangle the input file name and replace flack with opus and uh, write that out as the output file name and basically loop over every file that matches the the glob you set running ffmpeg on them all and doing all the stuff you know you can do all that in shell with a bunch of subshells calling base name and stuff uh, but this actually reads a lot cleaner uh, and is less likely to run into problems when you have a file name with spaces in it whereas if you're doing this in shell you'd have to have quite a mix of double quotes and single quotes all over this to make sure it did the right thing mm, yeah uh, they even made it parse uh, gnu tar's output so they ran tar dash v and t to basically list the contents of a tar file and then wrote a parse uh, regex that actually splits it all up into a table oh nice and they opened an ods file that's the LibreOffice um spreadsheet uh, and incur it from ODS and they get sheet one and then just get a list of the headers and they show the output there. Uh, and they can do all kinds of things with it. Actually, you know, figuring out how much power they saved and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or they just fetched uh, a JSON file pipe get results where total is greater than 30, short by percentages, and it spits out all that information. This is really cool. Oh. And then uh, they also like parsed package info to make a nice pretty printed list of uh, all the packages, what version they are in the description, uh, which can be really nice. Makes it a little more human readable than the normal output. So they say, in conclusion, new shell is very fun. It's terribly different from your regular shell, but it comes with a powerful language and tools. Uh, I always like shells because of pipe commands. And this is kind of like, what if JQ could be your whole shell? Uh, and I think it's really cool. Well, that's a good thought. Nice, good find. Okay, let's jump into the beastie bits for this week. We, uh, as Unix folks, seem to be playing this game quite often, the Unix pipe game, but this one is a bit different uh, because it's titled If Only the Kids Knew About Pipes. And this is a card game. Uh, Being a parent is hard work, they say. You need to prepare your child to operate in the world. Reading, writing, arithmetic, and how to make good choices are just the beginning. They also ought to know regular expressions and Unix pipes, because why not? Jack Doe can help with that last one thanks to the Unix pipe card game. So as an example, the task is print the most common line from a file. This would require the answer cut 03.txt, pipe that to sort, pipe that to unique dash C, pipe that to sort dash N, and then tail uh, dash one. Oh, is it a one or an L? Looks like a one. Yeah, it's a one. You can vary the rules to declare whoever has the smallest pipe or the largest pipe that accomplishes the task as the winner. We'd add a house rule that whoever has the fastest pipe ought to get something. Okay. Um, we don't, however, think this card game will make the biggest tables, unfortunately. Yeah. You can print your own card deck and even the box. Or you can buy a nice set if you don't want to spend the time. You should probably know about cat, grab, tail, head, WC, sword, and unique along with their options. If you want some other esoteric kids' learning activities, they also have Programming Time, which teaches algorithms in Python, and 4910 to teach the basics of machine code. Nice! That's certainly something for the holidays. 
you have some time and want some uh, computer off time while still having some Unix uh, under your fingers, then you use this card game. Nice idea. And yeah, we uh, liked the uh, Vienna talks, uh, one of them very much. So we thought we'd talk a little bit of, uh, about Andrew. Is it Andrew? Yeah, I think it's Andrew Gallatin's talk about optimizing uh, FreeBSD used by Netflix to serve video at 800 gigabits per second from a single server. And here's the talk slide. Uh, yeah, so this one's interesting is, how badly can I break Netflix's performance when I disable the optimization? <laughs> so they say, you know, since 2021, Netflix has been able to serve almost 800 gigabits per second of TLS encrypted traffic from a single server. Uh, how much are the various optimizations made to FreeBSD over the years actually helping in that? Uh, say most of the optimizations discussed in the slide deck were done outside of Netflix by members of the FreeBSD community. Uh, so they have some memes and such. But they start with FreeBSD-Current, uh, the Nginx web server, and video sending via send file, and encrypted using software KTLS. So the Netflix 400 gig video serving hardware was an AMD Epic uh, 7502P Rome, which is 32 cores at 3.5 gigahertz, uh, quarter terabyte of RAM, which can do about 150 gigabytes per second of memory bandwidth, or 1.2 terabits per second if you use you know, networking units. And it has 128 lanes of PCIe Gen 4, which gives us about 250 gigabytes per second or two terabits a second, again, in networking units. Uh, and to do that, it's basically two Mellanox ConnectX 6DX cards, uh, which are Gen 4 X16 cards that provide two 100 gigabit ports per NIC. So if you have two of those cards with two ports each, you get four 100 gigabit NICs. Uh, and they have support for offload in the NIC rather than having to do it at the CPU at all. It all gets done in the hardware. And then they have 18 Western Digital SN720 NVMEs, uh, which are two terabytes each. And again, they're using PCI Gen 3 at X4. But the main thing they're looking at are CPU utilization and the new gigabits per percent CPU metric. Uh, so they look at the data flow using NIC, KTLS, and send file. All the VM and NIC optimizations are enabled. And their baseline bandwidth was 375 gigabits per second with 53% CPU load, or about 7.1 gigabits uh, per percent CPU. And they have some flame graphs on it. So then they explain what send file is and some of the problems that can have there. You know, needing asynchronous send file, you don't want to wait on the disk all the time. You want to let Nginx go do some other work while it's waiting for the block to come in from disk. And so they show how all that works. And then a bit more about KTLS and what problems is trying to solve by having more of the stuff not have to go through the CPU. So if they disable KTLS and async send file, they say, I was expecting just elevated CPU and memory bandwidth. Uh, but the max bandwidth they actually got was about 40 gigabits a second at 100% CPU. Uh, they were bottlenecked on lock contention on the AIO queues. So Nginx is using AIO to avoid blocking when uh, sending files without async send file. So then they disabled KTLS and async send file, and they basically found with AIO enabled, they were not even getting one gigabit per second per percent CPU. Whereas using NIC KTLS instead of software, uh, they were getting about the, the seven gigabits per second that we saw earlier. And then they have flame graphs explaining that. Uh, so attempt two, they're using an Nginx thread pool uh, instead of the AIO stuff. And there they got to about 90 gigabits per second 
uh, with 80% CPU and a lot of time spent accessing memory, copying out file data from kernel to Nginx, crypto in user space SSL, extra mem copies in uh, Nginx for SSL, copying in data to the kernel from Nginx and back and forth. So by using threads instead, they got to a little over one gigabit per second per percent CPU. Uh, but if they disable SEM file, but do use KTLS, then they got about 75 gigabytes per second or gigabits per second at 80% CPU. And it was all tied up in CPU lock contention. So it was actually slightly worse. Uh, so then they said, what if we just disable SEM file entirely and have the NIC do all the encryption? Only marginally better, 95 gigabits per second at 80% CPU. Again, VM lock contention reading the files, lots of time copying memory back and forth. So marginally better, but not big. So then they said, what if we switch to ISA-L, which is Intel's Intelligent Storage uh, Accelerator Library, and it provides a bunch of AES block cipher primitives that are much faster on the Intel CPUs, or I guess x86 CPUs. So by enabling SendFile and, KT, uh, SendFile and KTLS, but disabling the uh, advanced crypto stuff, then they got to 180 gigabits per second at 80% CPU. Uh, so compared to the NIC, uh, you know, uh, with all the optimizations on, they were at 7.6 uh, gigabits per percent CPU. Uh, but without it, they're just eking over two. So they're still using send file and KTLS, but not using the faster software crypto, and it's limiting their performance. So then they enable send file and KTLS, uh, and they get about 240 gigabits per second at 80% CPU. But they're CPU memory bound in that ISA-L crypto code. So by using the basically advanced assembly uh, for the encryption, they get up uh, to 240 gigabits per second uh, instead of only 180. Uh, and then they talk about their different VM optimizations and found that you know when it's optimal, they're doing great. And when it's not, they're doing very, very poorly. Uh, 65 or 60 gigabits per second at 95% CPU with severe lock contention on the VM free page queue. Uh, and then they talk about batching and all the other bits they did and find that when they turn them off, everything gets pretty terrible. <laughs> uh, they also have recently started using the 16K pages code on ARM platforms. So ARM recently added support for using 16K pages instead of 4K pages. Uh, a lot of our kernel time is spent in page management because all the encryption stuff happens in 16K chunks. And so it's needing to do string four pages together to do that. So by switching that, they saw on their Ampere machines, they went from 345 gigs per second at 80% to 368 gigabits per second at 66%. So their gigabits per second per percent CPU went up quite a bit by using these larger pages. And they show the flame graphs comparing the four and 16K pages. And then they talk more about the CPU or the network optimizations they do as well. If they disable large receipt offloading, then it really eats a lot of their performance on them. And you know, they're basically limited by the NIC having to drop stuff because they can't handle all the incoming packets as separate events instead of batching them together. They also talk about uh, RSS accelerated LRO and what happens when they disable that and all those comparisons. I like the engineering driven and yeah. way of presenting that, like always showing the flame graph and the results. But yeah, like if they disable uh, TCP segmentation offloading, uh, they drop their performance down again to like two gigabits per second per CPU instead of seven, just by turning up one of those optimizations. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see like 
all of these is required to make it fast. But if you turn off any one of them, it gets really slow. It's not like each one of these optimizations adds another 30% performance. Mm -hmm. It's that without any one of them, all your performance goes away. Yeah. Uh, they all play together. Which is, you know, kind of counterintuitive to what you would expect. Uh, and then he's got a slightly sad slide with, but wait, there's more. There's a 800 gigabit per second prototype that I'm going to test, and it didn't arrive in time. <laughs> uh, but something for next year, they say. Maybe that's yeah. uh, not a uh, he got, uh <laughs> So he talks a little bit about that one. It's a 64-core AMD machine with four Mellanox uh, cards providing 800 gigabit ports. And initially, when they ran it, they only got 420 gigabits per second, uh, which isn't as much as they expect. But with uh, some tuning, they got it up to 500 gigabits. And they tried some other stuff uh, using local DMA to the NVMe, and they got up to 670 gigabits. Like, that's looking pretty good. Then doing disc-centric siloing and a bunch of other things. And eventually, you know, with all of that, they got up to 731 gigabits per second. That's certainly impressive. Wow. From a single box. They found, uh, yes. Uh, and that's with eight different NICs, although they found that the NICs were not evenly loaded. Some of the a NIC that was hitting popular stuff was doing 94 gigabits per second, and the other NICs were only doing about 89. Uh, and they're mostly limited by the fact that the NIC just can't handle the sheer packets per second involved in doing 731 gigabits per the second. The flood, the avalanche. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the cause of drops was largely the, the FreeBSD page daemon interfering with Nginx uh, on the popular side of the CPU and uneven loading and, and so on. And, uh, you know, there's still a bunch more for them to do. Very nice. Uh, then we have um, a little report or write-up from the FreeBSD Friday lecture, Writing Scholar's Guide to FreeBSD, from uh, Corey Steven, and talks about uh, how he volunteered for the FreeBSD Fridays because the FreeBSD Foundation runs those. Um, they look for volunteers and, of course, uh, greet those with warm acceptance. And so he had something to say, and that way... Um, he proposed the Writing Scholar's Guide to FreeBSD, and that was accepted. And it talks about how that all came to be, and also the actual Scholar's Writing Guide to FreeBSD itself, which is a long post, and uh, illustrated with pictures and linked to the recording on YouTube, so you can watch it. And that's certainly an interesting uh, talk that you don't get very often. So definitely check that out. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated in them, so that bandwidth can be safe. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts those with your local private key, which never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone would have been able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they cannot access it because it's still encrypted. TarSnap is easy to use. If you can use TAR, then you can use TarSnap. TarSnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. TarSnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. TarSnap also does bug bounties if you find some errors in the code. And with clients on all major platforms, 
There's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarslip.com to learn more. Time now for feedback and questions from our audience. And we have a bit of a you know, talk back here from an earlier episode into this one, referencing an earlier feedback uh, from Dan with a response to Hans who posted earlier. Uh, in response to Hans or Hans regarding dust, get a HEPA VAC or VAC. I used to have three cat litter boxes in the same basement room as my server rack. Ah, I remember it was about the server home lab dust yeah. yeah dust in your the machines in my rack at my house get really dusty whereas machines in a data center yeah. so the hepa back he has sat in front of the rack it reduced my need to clean from weekly to monthly far from perfect but a lot better than nothing also the air that comes out is cooler than ambient so that was a nice bonus yeah uh, and that's not exactly but to some degree what's happening at the data center too is basically all the air is going through some filters to capture all that particulate and keep it from uh, being in the air. So uh, technically HEPAVAC is is up to the standard of, of US medical stuff uh, to make sure that, you know, it's not gonna bother people with allergies and so on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that kind of thing, uh, you know, even like some of the computer cases I have for my home PC here has kind of a filter in front of the air intake that you can take out and clean because it's helpful. Uh, so yeah, uh, something like that could help. I don't know. In general, I just gave up and <laughs> and have to clean the dust out occasionally. Yeah. But you can kind of see how much particles and dust is in the air and looking at a month of dust. A little cheating, like the... Uh, in my basement, it's a separate room. It basically was a bedroom. Uh, and so the door stays closed and that helps. And the central house heating duct is blocked in that room. And it has its own separate air conditioning. Uh, and so that keeps all the human dust uh, that's floating around the rest of my house uh, from all ending up in that room. Yeah, yeah, that's good to have separate. Uh, but I've, I've not found a solution to keep the centipedes. That they don't, the centipedes don't crawl up into the servers or anything, but they do seem to be attracted to that room because it's warm. Ah, uh, yes, something. To and nest. then they seem to just uh, desiccate and be gone. Yeah, uh, not sure if they have any natural predators that could also <laughs> run around there. <laughs> Help cleaning uh, up. The, the main reason why I don't mind is that they are the thing that runs around and eats all the other insects. Around, yeah, right. So. It's the ecosystem at work. <laughs> okay, uh, but definitely, Dan, uh, thanks for your response. That's good to know. And next up is Johnny with a beehive question. And Johnny writes, hi, guys, I have a question. I'm running FreeBSD 13.1 laptop. Okay, I'm attempting to run the Heiko OS as a guest in Beehive. I got it to boot and got it to the Heiko OS desktop via VNC. However, I can't figure out how to get the networking to work for internet access for the Haiku guest OS. I get mixed messages online. Most websites say to use a bridge, but then they say that you can't build a bridge with a wireless interface. My laptop uses WLAN 0 as a wireless interface. It's being a laptop. It's rarely using the wired interface. I did find some steps from 2014 FreeBSD's mailing list where Alan, the one and only, uh, posted about setting up NAT uh, network address translation, but I couldn't get that to work either here is the link to your original message so that i i remember <laughs> writing that that was at the kind of hacker lounge at one of the meetups in cambridge oh we were in just some room in a university in cambridge um 
and yes, I was. I think I was working on the updating the version of Linux built into FreeBSD uh, for the Linux emulation from CentOS something to six or from six to seven. I think it was to six because it was 2014. Mm. When did CentOS seven come out? That was eight anyway. years ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah, sitting there working on that and being where we were, there was no wired ethernet. So I was on my wireless and I needed Beehive to work. Uh, and so, yeah, I just did NAT. And so in that one, basically you make up a whole different subnet that's just between the VM and, uh, your host. And then you use NAT to set that out over the network, the same way you would do NAT, uh, you know, with PF or whatever. I think. In this particular example, I was doing it with IPFW because that's what I like to do. Uh, but, you know, you would follow plenty more instructions of doing it with uh, PF as well. Okay. Uh, yeah, the rest of the message reads, you know, his attempts. Well, yeah, so uh, so I didn't, like, uh, I had to, like, manually assign the 10.0.9.2 to the uh, the interface inside the VM, and you'd have to you know, enable the gateway mode and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But is there something specific on HaikuOS that he would need to do? I have no idea uh, about HaikuOS. Same here, right? Uh, I'm just fighting with VirtualBox at the university because they have a different network for the students, uh, but they not have at home. And so it always works for them at home, but when they bring it to the university, we have a different network where they have to switch from bridge to not typically. And that kind of creates some head scratching. It worked at home, and now at university, it doesn't anymore. So it's similar with VirtualBox. Is it Mac filtering or something? Is yeah, tripping them up? That so that you not everyone can rightly connect into the network without authenticating. Yeah, and so you have to NAT, so it all comes from the the host machine's MAC address, not the made up MAC address. Mm -hmm. uh, and the thing, the other thing that can happen there is if you've done some kind of cloning to put the same VM image with the same config file on. 40 machines in the lab uh -huh. and all trying to use the same MAC address. It can yeah, really that. confuse the switch <laughs> about which switch port goes to this MAC address. Where this should go to. Yeah. So I definitely need to figure out another solution because some students bring a newer M1 Mac that can't do VirtualBox. And so it's all a bit messy. Right. Yeah. It, was, it turns out that's not even the same kind of CPU. Yeah. There we go. And uh, yeah. I'm like really you'd need different images even for ARM. Yeah. One got it working on. Um, VMware and with the ARM, previously the ARM image, I was so proud of that person because they figured it out better than I did. Uh, but they said they were just a beginner and have never installed FreeBSD, but they thought to, to try ARM images and they weren't. But not uh, driving away from too far from this one. Um, I think by now there are plenty of Beehive instructions to get this kind of networking going. Yes, uh, to get nat uh, networking with Beehive uh, through your Wi-Fi is definitely something that's been covered in a bunch of other places since my original post about it in 2014. I don't know that I have one off the top of my head handy. I've just done it so many times that I can do it with my eyes closed. Yeah. Uh, Previously forums, maybe? But yes, I think... Uh, I'm sure somebody's written something down. Yeah. Didn't Tom do something recently on a Clara article? I don't know that we would have talked about desktop, uh, like a... No. Wi-Fi, though. No. Well, we did NAT, but I don't think it was in the case of... Uh... Yeah. If someone else has that and just needs to uh, post the instructions, then definitely send this to us, to feedback at bsdnow.tv, 
and then we'll be happy to link this back so that everyone profits. Yeah. And then the other one I would say is the they mentioned the VM run tool. Uh, you might want to look at VM-Beehive from ports. It's a much more complete and uh, better documented. Mm -hmm. Also good idea. It's been a while since I last spun up a Beehive. But yeah, <laughs> depends on the demand that I have from other people. It might also just be that bridging to Wi-Fi maybe works as long as you add the Wi-Fi to the bridge first, because it's generally the Wi-Fi where you can't change its MAC address and the bridge tries to make all the interfaces use the same MAC address. But I don't remember. What about lag interfacing? Bonding those That's two a different set of problems. Is it? Okay. I thought it could bridge uh, or lag. The but yeah, the wide, big thing is button. basically it comes down to the same thing as you were saying happens at your university there is kind of Mac filtering. And so you have to use NAT so that all looks like it's coming from the host and not from some random guest where yeah. you don't know where that relates to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Hopefully we uh, find a solution or someone else has a link to their blog post or whatever that can uh, solve that here okay thank you johnny anyway for your nice link back from the 2014 uh times uh let's go to manuel who is an avid listener on his uh, bike rides to work and i guess back as well from eurobeastycon social event and manuel uh, writes hello benedict and alan i just listened to the eurobeastycon episode yes as we suspected while cycling to my office, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the social event and the venue. Oh, yes, that and the whole conference. Organizing all that was a lot of work for me. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. So it means a lot to me that you mentioned it in the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for the acknowledgement. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for making it happen. You know, after years, we really needed the conference. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that it went off so well uh, and it was so much fun. It's just a testament to the amount of work you put into that. You and the whole team, but, you know, especially you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, good luck with your PhD studies. I guess you will be uh, a doctor in no time. Um, here we go. Thank you for this uh, feedback uh, in this episode and everyone else who wrote in. Uh, we'll be back with another one next week, as always. What else is there to say thanks? Any other last-minute announcements? can't think of any. I don't have any. <laughs> okay, then we'll leave it at that. Have a good week and until next time.